0: really irritates me is when people get offended by something and they act like they're not offended. It's like, you okay? I'm fine. I'm fine. Didn't hurt my feelings. It's it's, it's not just that they have a chip on their shoulder. They like have an ankle weight on them and because they carry it around for so long, they forget that they even have it on. Everybody else notices except them. (laughs) It kind of reminds me I shouldn't tell you this. When Barbara and I first started dating, we would got to eat. And before the server had come from the table, I'd just pick a piece of lettuce out of the salad, just put it on my tooth, and they'd say, oh, hi, how are you? I just wanted to see if they would say anything. You know how many servers did? Zero. Why? Because nobody likes being awkward, and they don't like it when you're awkward. So if you're thinking that you have kind of hidden an offense from someone, but they're just kind of avoiding you, not making eye contact, you're probably not as sly as you think you are. Oh, that's awkward. (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) Okay, there we go. My wife and I have been married for 36 years. You know how many times we've shouted at each other 36 years? How many times? Zero. Zero. Now, don't be proud of me because I'm not proud of myself. It's not that I'm so holy. It's that both of us are powders, not shouters. You powders, man, I got to hand it to you. You can blow up in a heartbeat, but it blows over pretty quick. Not powders. What you guys do in a microwave, we do in a crock pot. (laughs) Slow simmer. How long? Days. It's actually longer than that, but I'd be too embarrassed to admit that in public, so I'll just say days. You know, I think it's worse for Christians, too, because we're supposed to be forgiving. We're supposed to be gentle. We're supposed to have patience. And so we act like we're really holy when we're actually just ignoring an offense. We stuff it down, and you know what happens when something is just stuffed down your throat and then it sits there for a while? When it comes back up, it is not pretty for anyone. And it could be maybe so in your marriage that your spouse says something to you, criticizes you in front of the kids, or even worse, in front of your friends, and you stuff it, you pout. I'm good at that. Or maybe it's at work. Someone takes credit for something you did. Or you get passed over for a promotion, and you just, you get offended, but you act like you're, you ignore the offense. Or it could be with a friend of yours. They broke a trust. They said something about you that you told them in secret and it just, it's painful. But you act like it's no big deal and you just ignore an offense. So let me begin this way. <clears throat> Hi, my name is Mark and I'm a powder. <laughs> and I wanna tell you a story about a powder in the Bible and show you the consequences of what ignoring an offense will do in your life, always. His name is Elijah, and he was a major prophet. In fact, he was the most famous prophet of all the Bible. Three and a half years earlier than our story, First Kings 19, three and a half years earlier, he said to King Ahab, you have got to stop letting people bow down to idols, and because they are bowing down, rain will not fall from God for three and a half years. It was a bad drought. People were really hurting. Crops failed, animals died. The king himself, King Ahab, was going out to look for grass to feed his horses. And he took a friend of his named Obadiah. That may sound familiar to you because he is one of the prophets of the Old Testament. Like he wrote one of the books. That's just one chapter, but hey, he got in the Bible. I didn't, so way to go, Obadiah. Obadiah is actually a faithful prophet of God, but he's secretly supporting the prophets of God when Ahab, his boss, is killing them. With the king's resources, he hid 100 prophets, put them in a cave. So when he's going out looking for grass, he's wandering around, and he meets, you know who, Elijah. And he goes, Elijah, where have you been? you got to be careful because the king is looking for you. We've searched five different nations, nowhere to be found. Elijah's kind of like the Jason Bourne of the Bible. Like he won't be found unless he wants to be found. And so Elijah says, Obadiah, go tell Ahab I want to meet him face to face. He goes, dude, what? You're trying to get me killed? Because I know what's going to happen. You're going to say you're here. He comes and the spirit's going to take you away and then I'll be killed. I'm already on the razor's edge here, buddy. He goes, no, I, I swear I'll be here. And He was. And Ahab said, you troubler of Israel. Don't smack talk a prophet. Elijah said, me a troubler of Israel? No, Ahab, you are the trouble of Israel. As a king, you're allowing people to bow down to foreign gods, I call you out. (laughs) You remember that in in like middle school? After school, man, I call you out behind the gym. Seriously, that's what he does. Go to Mount Carmel, I'll meet you there. You bring all your prophets and I'll bring me and my God, and we'll see which of our prophets can pray down fire on the altar, like no matches allowed. So there they were, early in the morning. Elijah, Elijah's with his prophets of Baal, 450. 400 other prophets of Asherah, and they pray all morning long. <laughs> Elijah starts to mock him. He, wait, why can't your God light the fire? Oh, maybe he's on vacation. Oh, or oh, maybe he's deaf. Hello, or oh, maybe, maybe he's going number two. Seriously, if you read it in the Hebrew, that's what it suggests. And he's just making fun of them. They could even madder, and they cut themselves to show their God, see, we're bleeding for you. No answer. Evening sacrifice comes. Elijah says, all right, boys, my turn. Out of the way. I'm going to paraphrase this prayer. It something like this. God, don't embarrass yourself. Because these people, are, they don't think you're real. They think their gods are real, so light the fire. <laughs> A fireball comes down, consumes the sacrifice, the altar, and the ground around it. And Elijah says, these prophets have been betraying our nation. They've been deceiving and destroying our people. It's time for you to destroy them. And the people went after the prophets of Baal and they slaughtered them that day. And then Elijah turned back to Ahab. And he said, king, now it can rain. So you better get back home before it rains. And so he jumps in his chariot and takes off. Elijah begins to pray. God, don't let me down. We need rain. And it came. As they say in the Midwest, it was a toad strangler. And Elijah had the spirit come on him and he begins to run back to Jezreel where the king was. Actually, this is amazing. He passed the king's chariot along the way. And that's where our story begins. First Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel, they're really her prophets. Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Now, Elijah has just faced 850 false prophets and the king. You think he's scared of one woman? Terrified of this one woman. There's a reason that to this day mamas don't name their baby girls Jezebel. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Now, I don't believe him. He says, I want to die. Take my life. Okay, why didn't you stay in Jezreel? From one powder to another, I'm telling you, we can be somewhat melodramatic, terrible. And God is going, okay, sends an angel down to Elijah and says, you want to run away from home? Then really run away. You're going to Horeb. Horeb is horrible. Now, I know there's a lot of names of places that maybe you've never seen on a map. So let me just show you what it looks like. This is Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is a lush, beautiful forest overlooking the breadbasket of Israel. It's a phenomenally fruitful plain. And if you pull back from Mount Carmel, you will notice it's in the northern part of the country of Israel. It's where most of the food is grown. It has the Lake of Galilee. This is where the Jordan River begins. And 17 miles to the south is Jezreel, another valley that is extremely fruitful. That's where Ahab lived and that's where Elijah should have stayed. But the powder decided to run away from home. So he goes to Beersheba. That is the southernmost city in all of Israel. It's a border town. And then, to show God, he leaves the country. He goes another day's journey and sits under a broom bush, which is actually a tree. And it's the only shade you can find in this God-forsaken desert. And it's there that the angel says, you want to run away? Okay, run away. You got to go to back to the beginning to Horeb. Horeb was the first stop when Israel escaped from Egypt. They camped at Horeb. You might be more familiar with the sister mountain of Horeb, Mount Sinai. That's where Moses went up to receive the law of God. And the first two commandments of God, to have no other gods before me, and to make no idols. And in the 40 days and 40 nights when Moses was up on the mountain, what is Israel doing at Horeb? Breaking the first two commandments. It was there that they committed idolatry by making two golden calves. So God takes Elijah and he's hiding in a cave at Horeb. Listen to this conversation. Then he went to a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty of Israel. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Now, in that short conversation, there are no less than six lessons that we need to learn from a cave. From one powder to another, if you're avoiding an offense, and, and we're, look, we're not talking about offenses like someone cuts you off while you're driving and you, you know, pull them over and you know, give him what for, okay? Ashley already talked about stepping over an offense, particularly the minor offense. No, we're talking about, well, not social media, like someone posts something and you go, oh, I have to respond to that. E- you don't. But there are some offenses that are taking people away from following God. The idolatry of Israel was destroying Israel. There are some offenses that not only are hurting them as an individual, but they hurt your family. They hurt your faith. They hurt your business. Those are the offenses that if you ignore them, what happened to Elijah will happen to you. So here are the six lessons. Number one, when you avoid offense, you take responsibility for a battle That is not yours. God asked, where are you? Elijah, where are you? The right answer, or why are you here? The correct answer is, well, I'm here at Horeb because I'm pouting. Horeb was where idolatry in Israel began. This is such an important observation. God took Elijah back to the beginning to show him the battle that Elijah was fighting was not Elijah's battle. This was God's battle. And some of you right now are really frustrated with a relationship. It could be a spouse, it could be a roommate, it could be a child of yours. And you're saying, I just want to hide in a cave. It's not your fight. Do you understand that? Even your child that came from your body was designed by God, knit together in your womb by God. This is God's child long before it's your child. Your husband is God's man before he's your man. Your wife is God's woman before she's your woman. The things that are going on in our culture right now that we're all so frustrated about, these are not new battles and they're not your battles. These are God's battles. It's his fight and he will win. The second thing that happens is you put yourself in a cave. Do You ever do that? You, you isolate from other people? Caves are literally dark, and when I'm pouting, I will tell you, I put the lights down lower. I don't know why, maybe I'm just signaling, but it's like, I, I don't wanna see anybody, I don't wanna talk to anybody, I watch too, too much TV, sometimes I work too late, or if, if the offense I'm overlooking, ignoring, is at work, I'll leave early. You ever do anything like that, or is it just, it's just me that's embarrassed right now? Okay, I get it. When you go into a cave, you are acting like you're all alone, and you're not That that leads to a third consequence, that you feel special in the worst possible way. Elijah said, I am the only one left. He was not, and he knew he was not. Obadiah told him, buddy, I have saved like a hundred prophets of God. I put them in the cave, and I fed them from the king's resources. He knew he wasn't alone, but he acted like he was alone. And that's why I think, It's so important, and you hear us talk about it a lot around here, is the groups. We have a group near you, we have a group for you. Why? Because when you're in a group, our group just regathered this week and going around the table, what have you learned in COVID? I was reminded again of how comforting it is to know that you're not alone. You're not the only one whose marriage is hurting. You're not the only one whose heart has been broken. You're not the only one with a wayward child. You're not the only one that lost a job. You're not the only one that's dealing with a problem at work. And part of the value of groups is to get you out of the cave and get you surrounded with other people that can help you see what God sees. Because when you're in a cave, here's another thing that happens: is you make the offense bigger. Did you hear what Elijah said? They are trying to kill me. Oh, now wait a second. Elijah, who's trying to kill you? The prophets of Baal, they didn't try to kill you. The prophets of Asherah, they didn't try to kill you. Ahab, he didn't try to kill you. Who tried to kill you? Well, it was Jezebel. Oh, so she, not they, tried to kill you. And part of the difficulty, when you ignore an offense, when you act like it's not there, it just goes into your gullet and it just, it gets bigger and when it finally comes out, it is way out of proportion to what you actually have to deal with. The fourth lesson from the cave is you let the noise around you overpower God's voice. I'm going to show you specifically how this happens. The next verse, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And I want you to hear what God gently whispered. Why are you here? it said, wait a minute, wasn't that what God asked earlier? Yeah, it was. God said, why are you here? Twice. And you know what Elijah responds? With the exact same narrative that he had scripted in his head. Am I the only one that does that? You have a conversation in a car or in a shower, and you win, of course, the argument. <laughs> and by the time you have the conversation, The script has made you deaf to the gentle whisper of God. Why are you here? Why are you in this cave pouting rather than confronting the person that God has called you to confront? See, the problem was not the prophets of Baal. The problem was not the prophets of Asherah. The problem was Jezebel. It wasn't even Ahab. She was the one wearing the tunic in that family. And he needed to help his king confront his wife with the damage she was doing to the people of God. When you don't confront, here's a final lesson, and this to me is the harshest of them all. You forfeit the role God has given you. You're the one that was offended. Therefore, you're the one that has not just the obligation, but the opportunity to help someone see and know God better than they do. If you're the one that's offended, then it is your opportunity and obligation to confront. So, I wanna show you how this played out in Elijah's life. The very next verse, verse 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Now you may not know about Hazael or Aram, just know this, it's a foreign king of another nation. And Elijah gets to pass the baton from one king to the next. Change is coming, but it's not coming through Elijah. The next verse, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. Well, that was Ahab. He's anointing Ahab's replacement. Change is coming. But Elijah is not going to be the agent of that change. You know who is? This man. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. When you ignore an offense, and neglect to confront, you are forfeiting the opportunity that God has given you to make the difference in someone else's life. This isn't about putting someone else in their place. This isn't about giving someone a beat down. It's about lifting someone up and giving them the dignity of an honest conversation. So here's my challenge, and it's as much to me as anyone, I promise you that, Turn the offense into offense. Turn the offense into offense. Use this as an opportunity to have an awkward conversation that will help someone else follow God better, to make a better choice, to have a higher path than they do right now. You say, man, that's like, that's just scary. I know, I know. I'm not good, I'm not good at confrontation you know who is? Yeah, I don't know either. Like there's none of us that are born to confront other people. It goes against the grain of every human being. It's not natural, and you're not gonna be good at it, but you can be better at it if you practice it. And so what I wanna do is just give you three simple steps. that I'm plagiarizing from Jesus, so they're really good. But these are three steps that Jesus said, if someone is in sin, again, these aren't minor offenses that you need to step over, as Ashley said. These are are problems that create problems for other people in your family, at work, at church, or in a community that you care about. Here's step number one. Confront in private. That's important. Don't shame them. This is not about a beat down. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. And my experience is the vast majority of time, step one is enough to solve the problem. I'm gonna, give you, I'm gonna give you a little bit more on that as well because this is pretty helpful. When you sit down with someone, you're gonna have to make an appointment and say, look, I've been meaning to talk to you about this. I owe it to you to talk to you about this. So when you sit down Just do this, your heart's gonna be racing, you're gonna be a little breathless, take a deep breath, slow your heart, and then this, this is not a magic wand, but it's pretty close. Say, I need to tell you something that's gonna be awkward, and I'm pretty sure my words are not gonna come out right, because they won't. There's not not this perfect sentence that smooths over everything. There's not a right way of saying it, so they go, oh, well, I see now. Just be honest. Because what you're doing is showing them you care more about their relationship than you do about how they see you. That is dignifying. And here's something else I found that's like really helpful. It's just a little formula. When you blank, I feel blank. A lot of people, when they confront, they say, you never shut the door. Well, that's not true. Sometimes I do. You you always come home late. Well, that's not true. I came home early three months ago. So when you start a, a confrontation with always or never, it will never work and it's always wrong. So if you want to win the argument, let's just say you do, don't start with always or never because you will never win. You will always lose that argument. This, however, is almost impossible to argue with. When you come home late, well, did they come home late? Look at the clock. Yeah, they came home late. Okay, they can't argue with that. I feel like I'm not important to you. And they might say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Well, maybe I shouldn't. You're probably right. I probably shouldn't feel that way, but I do. When you do this, this is how I feel. When you spend money more than what we agreed on without asking me, I feel like you don't respect me. When you make fun of me in front of my friends, I feel really belittled. When you phrase it like that, it's something that the person you're confronting can really latch onto and go, I don't want to make you feel like that. If they don't want to make you feel like that, your problem is solved. Now, it doesn't mean that you have no more problems, but if you have something to confront, there's a way of confronting in a way that they can receive. Does it always work? No. In my experience, it's about 80% of the time step number one works. If it doesn't, you're going to have to go to step number two. Bring in a neutral mediator. Now, we're not talking about a problem of like, oh, you hurt my feelings. You, you, know, you, you laughed at me funny. We're talking about you're ready to get divorced. They are addicted to uh, drugs or alcohol. They are about to do something illegal or damaging to themselves or someone else. These are serious things, right? You bring in a neutral mediator, and what you're saying is, I want someone that you can trust and I can trust because our relationship is too important to just ignore the offense. Jesus said it this way, that if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's a, in the Mosaic law, that was a legal term. We are inviting, so it could be a family member It could be a neighborhood coach. It could be a pastor on staff. It could be a professional counselor. But you're bringing something who will listen to both of you so that both of you can hear the other person. That's so critical. Step number three, practice intervention. If nothing else works, Jesus says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Okay, these are Jewish people. You know what they did with pagans and tax collectors? Nothing. You don't talk to them, you don't eat with them, you don't invite them into your home, you don't bring them over for dinner, period. Boy, that sounds harsh. Yeah, let me clarify something else too. The church, uh, that's not like all 10 campuses, right? So don't don't call Ashley and say, somebody offended me, so kick them out. (laughs) Save your breath. No, the church for Matthew was a house church, like what we would call a neighborhood group. It's people who do life together, who sit around the table together, who have conversations together, because if you don't have a community of care, then excommunication doesn't work. It's a big word, excommunication, but that's what we're talking about. Kicking someone out of your circle of community. And you go, wow, like that's harsh. I I don't think I'm comfortable doing that Oh yeah, you are. Because that's exactly what you're doing when you ignore an offense. You are excommunicating without communicating. You ghost them on social. You block their calls. You trash their emails. You don't invite them over anymore. You have excommunicated them without communicating to them why. You have forfeited the responsibility God has given you to help another human being follow the path of God. So I just wanna ask you what God asked Elijah. Why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you ignoring an offense but carrying it around like an ankle weight? That's not fair to them It's not fair for you, and it's not fair to God. When we ignore an offense, we forfeit the opportunity to be God's voice in someone else's life. I know it's difficult. Look, I'm a powder, not a shouter, I get it. I know know how uncomfortable and awkward it is, but every time that I've done it, had an awkward conversation in love, It has produced fruit, and it's honored God, and I know that's what you want. Let me pray for us. Holy Father, I just can't imagine how many hundreds or thousands of conversations are gonna happen this week. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be in the middle of all of them. Even when the words don't come out right, even when we don't get the immediate results that we want, would you allow us, Lord, to be your man and your woman to affect change in our world? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.